Genesis 11, 27 through 12, 3. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The Chattahoochee River uh, runs through Atlanta, Georgia, if you didn't know that. And since most of my schooling years were in Atlanta, the Chattahoochee featured into many memories from childhood uh, at various ages in my life. And so there's the high school memory, which stands out, where a few friends and I had heard about a spot where you could jump off a cliff into the Chattahoochee. And so Jeremy Edgar, William Joyner, and I headed off. And it's fuzzy to me now whether we drove or rode our bikes. I think we drove. So uh, we, we drove at that point, so we're at least 16. And this was not an official spot, you know, with a lifeguard and things like that. There were those spots on the Chattahoochee. This was not one of them. And so when you're river jumping in a new spot, you actually spend a good bit of time swimming around that area below the cliff. You don't want to be surprised when you jump into the river, right? So you, you're going to swim around. You're going to see if there's any rocks or logs that were there that are there that weren't there before and things like that. And then you climb up on top of the cliff, and then there's nothing left to do but jump off the cliff. And so one way or another, uh, I was first. I was the first one to jump. And this is maybe 30 or 40 feet. You know, my memory, it gets higher and higher every, every decade or so. It's like, actually, it was 150 feet. <laughs> So, but I think, I think, I think it was 30 feet. Uh, don't hold me to that too, too much, but 30 to 40 feet, something like that. And so I stalled a bit. I was pretty nervous because I was the first one to jump that day. And then ultimately I jumped in. And so you have a couple seconds of it being in the air and then the rush of a cold river. And on a hot summer day, that's a great thing. Feeling the heat and you're, you, you want refreshment, you jump in the river and then... It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And no, no one got hurt or anything like that if you're wondering what's going to happen. It was just a beautiful uh, uh, picture of refreshment on a hot day. And when you jump into a river, even though at the time I didn't think about this, there's a couple things you know. One is that river is from somewhere. You don't jump into a river at the source of the river. You don't find the very beginning of the Chattahoochee up in the North Georgia mountains, you know, 100 miles from where I was, and jump in at that point. That would be very, very dangerous because that's very shallow at that point, isn't it? But it is from somewhere. That river is from somewhere. And then the other thing you know is that that river is going somewhere. 
<clears throat> and at this point, the Chattahoochee is going somewhere hundreds of miles away. It's going to eventually make its way, you know, combining with another river, it's going to eventually make its way to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, 100 miles or 200 miles of it is the, the border between Georgia and Alabama. But it's going somewhere. So this river that we jumped into was from somewhere pretty far away, actually, and it's going somewhere pretty f- even further away. And I say all that because that's what we find in our text this morning. <clears throat> this reminder that as Christians, our Christian faith is jumping into this river. We find life, the living water that Chip reminded us about, the living water in Christ. But then over time, you realize this thing I'm jumping into, it's been around a long time. It's from somewhere. And this thing I'm jumping into, it's going somewhere eternally in the future. And this morning is one of those passages where we realize where our faith comes from. A significant part of the promises we enjoy come from this very moment in the life of Abram. We're going to call him Abram and Abraham. Abram is Abraham. He's called Abraham uh, in chapter 17. That's where he gets a new name. Abram means exalted father. So that's, that's the name he begins with. But then at a certain point, the Lord gives him a new name, Abraham, father of a nation. So if I use those names interchangeably, it's the same person. Now, Abraham might be at the top of the list of the most famous people in the Old Testament. You know, whether it's Moses or Abraham, it's hard to tell. But one of the reasons for that is because he is prominent, almost preeminent, but not quite, but prominent in three of the great religions of the world. Christianity, obviously, but also Islam and Judaism. So to Muslims in Islam, he's the friend of God. He's called that in Genesis, but he's the friend of God. He's one of the five great prophets. So you have Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and then the last greatest prophet, Muhammad, at least in Islam. Muhammad claims, at least claimed himself, to be descended from Abraham's first son, Ishmael. Jews refer to him as Father Abraham. And the Old Testament, of course, would be their Bible. But the great claim of of a Jew is that you are a son of Abraham. Now we see in the New Testament a great redefining of what a son of Abraham is, and we'll we'll, we'll refer to that often. But to Jews, he is a significant figure, and being descended from Abraham means you're descended and you're an heir of these great promises given to him. But to Christians, he is also a a kind of father of our faith because the promises, as I said, the promises that we enjoy and we're going to think a lot about today have everything to do with our Christian life today. So this river that we jump into, some of, some of what we understand about this river is defined by the promises given to Abraham. So right from the start, this Genesis series is called Right From the Start. Right from the start, we see Abraham. So we're in chapter 12 of Genesis, not the very, very beginning of Genesis, but early, early in the story of Genesis. And these promises given to him are promises that shape the entire Old Testament history, but they also shape the New Testament. So we'll see that. And because they shape the New Testament, that means they shape our lives as well. So God's promises to Abraham are God's promises to you. God's promises to Abraham are God's promises to you. So we're going to think about the three promises that we get here. A homeland, a people, and a blessing. A homeland, a people, and a blessing. That's what we receive as Christians. A homeland, a people, and a blessing. Before I pray, I want to give a a quick update because a couple weeks ago we prayed for Meredith Rickard 
she was showing signs of concern to her parents, and so we prayed for her as a church. Many people prayed for her, and our prayers were answered. And so the, in some ways, the alarm was a, was a false alarm. I mean, there, in some ways, there's no such thing as a false alarm when it's your child, right? But, but in some ways, at a technical level, it was a false alarm. So the MRI was clean. The blood tests they did were clean. The headaches that we prayed about, and, and, and in, some, in some ways, are the reason we prayed, are gone. And so we are praising God with the Rickards. Uh, thank you, Lord, for answering our prayers for Meredith. And may he continue to do that. May she, may be, may she be symptom-free uh, now and forever uh, from this illness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness uh, to our children. Thank you for the many, many answered prayers uh, that uh, we have experienced as parents of children. And we know that not every prayer for our children is answered. Uh, we, we accept that. We are, we are not uh, oblivious to that. But Lord, when our prayers are answered, we want to give you glory. We want to highlight it. We want to celebrate it. And this is the time where you have answered our prayers. And we give you thanks and praise for that. And this morning, as we think about this huge figure of history, Abraham, we do want to remember Muslims and Jews in our life and throughout the world, these millions and millions and hundreds of millions of people who are confused. Not just about Abraham, it's, it's unfortunate to be confused about Abraham, but we know that they're confused about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's catastrophic. And so we pray, Lord, that their confusion about the Lord Jesus Christ would be, would be erased. We pray that you would bring a true revelation of, of Christ to these hundreds of millions of people throughout the world. We pray that there would be a revival in, among Muslims. We pray that there would be a revival among Jews. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to celebrate with them the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not just a great prophet, certainly not just some, some kind of Jewish rabbi or Jewish leader, but God, we do pray that we will be able to celebrate with them the Lord Jesus Christ and use us for the Jews and Muslims in our life, Lord. We pray that you would use us, help us to have winsome and helpful truth to speak to them as we have opportunity. Help us to testify of this gospel. We read in your word that there is one name and one name alone through which we can find salvation and that's Jesus. It's not Mohammed, it's not Abraham. It's Jesus, one name and one name alone where we can find salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our first promise is a homeland. Let's get, do a recap quick of the, the storyline so far in Genesis. We started with creation, with Adam. <clears throat> We read about Adam and Eve's first children, Cain and Abel, and the unfortunate uh, uh, fratricide, is that, is that the right word? Fratricide that took place there where Cain kills Abel. And then the restoration of, of the line with Seth. And then we read about or heard about uh, Noah and the flood and the covenant that was made with Noah. We got to the Tower of Babel and another unfortunate outbreak of sin and the Lord's uh, 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 a discipline and, and response to that sin at the Tower of Babel. And then we get to the offspring of Shem. If you remember, Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it's the, great, it's, uh, the greatest of those sons is Shem. 
And so it's Abram that, fought, that comes in the line of Shem. And we read about that in chapter 11. Now, Abram is introduced actually as the son of Terah. So in the, in the chapter break in Genesis, as Moses is writing, he uses this phrase, these are the generations of. And interestingly, it's not Abraham that gets the, these, these are the generations of marker, but actually in 1127, it's Terah, his father. Terah gets the chapter break. These are the generations of Terah. So Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. And then we get the chapters on Abraham. Now what changes at chapter 12, this is, this is a turning point in the book of Genesis. So Genesis 1 through 11 is kind of all humanity. Where did we all come from? All the nations are in view in chapters 1 through 11. <clears throat> but when you get to chapter 12, there's a narrowing of the focus. And now it's this one man, Abraham. He becomes the focus. And so we, we learn about his life in very great detail. We have uh, chapters 12 through 25 of Genesis are about Abraham's life. And then his son, we learn about his son. And then his grandson, Jacob. And then his great-grandsons, the 12, the, the 12 sons who become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the rest of the story of Genesis. But this one line from Abraham, that's the focus from Genesis 12 to the end of the story. That's a significant change going from all nations in chapter 11 to this one man. And it starts with these verses, chapters, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and the, and the three promises that are made here. First promise in verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land, to the land that I will show you. Now that's not written in the form of a promise, you know, I will give you that land. But just a few verses later, if, you've, if you scroll down to verse six and seven, when Abram's made the journey, it says that Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So now Abram's in Canaan, looking around, having experiences, and the Lord appears to him and says, this is the land that I will give to you and your offspring. And so he built there an altar to Yahweh. Not a generic God, but to Yahweh. He built an altar to Yahweh. At this point, he's a follower of Yahweh, the true and living God who had appeared to him. And then that's echoed again in the next chapter. <clears throat> chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. As Abram and Lot separate, actually 14 and 15, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. Perhaps Abram at this point is thinking that Lot got the better deal. He, he chose the better land. But lift up your eyes, look all around you, every direction. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And so the land promise, the land sworn by God to Abraham, that becomes one of the feature elements throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament. The, the Exodus, maybe you've heard of the Exodus in the book of Exodus. So Moses delivers the Israelites out of Egypt and he delivers them to a place. Now he doesn't get himself to enter that place, but it's how that place is referred to that we want to draw attention to. It isn't just Canaan. 
That is ultimately where they're going, to Canaan, the land of Canaan. But here's, here's a verse at the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 34. And at this point, Moses knows he's not going to enter the, into the promised land. But the Lord wants him to see it, at least. And so the Lord said to him, so after Moses has gone to a place where he can see across the Jordan River, and the Lord said to him, this is the land I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God could have said Canaan. This is the land of Canaan. But he's calling attention to this very promise that we're reading about in Genesis 12. This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Part of the Lord's discipline in Moses' life for his anger is that he does not get to enter the promised land. But that, that, that description, the land that I swore to Abraham... That's the Lord swearing it, swearing an oath, promising a very solemn oath. That this is the covenant. This is part of the covenant with Abraham, the sworn land promise. And that, and that marks the history of Israel. So they, they get into Canaan, good day. They wipe out many of the kings, good day. But their faithfulness is a very unstable faithfulness. And so they have many bad days and ultimately they're removed from the land because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant. They're taken to Babylon, they're taken to Assyria. But then the Lord's covenant remains and so he brings them back to Babylon. And that's our Old Testament. And when we get to the New Testament, there's a, there's a fascinating change in the land understanding. So the, what the land is that we're all longing for and being promised starts to change. It starts to be re- redefined. And so then we start to see verses like this. This is from Hebrews 11. And we realize that the homeland isn't a, a literal piece of dirt in the Middle East. Our homeland is something, something different. Hebrews 11 says this. Speaking of Abraham. <clears throat> oh, we do, sorry, we do have it. Uh, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, what's interesting about that, of course, is that Abraham walked in Canaan. And yet, even though he walked in that soil, he was looking for something deeper, greater, something in the future, something heavenly. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then a few verses later, these all died in faith. So the, the, the people he had just been talking about, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. So even though Israel had received Canaan, the land, we refer to as Israel, this is the same Israel that we refer to as Israel today. They had received it. And yet, there's a sense in which they hadn't received it. Because there's a better country, a heavenly one. That's the real homeland that we're all longing for. Now, if you're old like me, you remember when U2's I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For came out. That was a big day in all of our lives, I know. 1987. <clears throat> 700 million plays on Spotify, that's not terrible. Another 200 million for Where the Streets Have No Name from the same album. 
So almost a trillion plays on Spotify, which I think is a big number. But the thing about those songs, which affected me, and I wasn't a Christian at the time, but it affected me, and in some ways it affects me even more now as a Christian, is, is the sense of longing in those songs. And I like to think that a lot of those hundreds of millions of people that have listened to that song feel that, the sense of longing for a place, a homeland. And what we learn uh, as, as Christians is that there is, a, there is such a place. There is a homeland better than we could ever imagine, better than we could ever dream of. We can, we can try to describe it in all kinds of uh, metaphors and descriptions and, and poetry that has to do with, with this creation, this realm, but it doesn't begin to touch what it's going to be like. It's a homeland that we all long to uh, experience. It's a better country. Whatever, whatever country you've lived in, how, as great as it was in this, in this realm, well, it's just a picture. It's just the smallest foretaste of a better country. That is a heavenly one. That's what we're longing for. And that promise is ours in Christ. It's ours in Christ. So the, this river that we jump into is heading for a better country, a heavenly one. That's the first promise, a homeland. The second promise is a people. Verse two, and I will, speaking to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will make of you a great nation. Now we don't wanna fast forward too quickly. We know where the story goes. Yes, they become a nation and then they, and then they become the church in, in the New Testament. But you gotta, you gotta slow down for a second. Where are we in the story here? Now, the last significant detail we learned about Abram or Abraham's wife is that she was barren. She had no child. So chapter 11, verse 30, now Sarai, she's gonna be called Sarah later. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. That's what we know of his situation. So this is a couple experiencing childlessness, which is a very common situation, experiencing childlessness. And yet the Lord says, I will make of you a great nation. I mean, just like the land promise is not an obvious promise in Abraham's life, well, the nation, a great nation promise is even less obvious. You know, at this point, he's 75 years old. He's probably thinking, I'm just not sure it's gonna happen. But the Lord nonetheless promises, I will make of you a great nation. And so that son, the child heir, that becomes a huge part of the Abraham story. So a lot of the chapters in Abraham uh, and Genesis are devoted to this promised son who will become the promised uh, beginning of a nation. And then that son, Isaac, well, childness, childlessness will afflict them as well. And so Isaac having a, a son who becomes Jacob, that becomes a big part of the story. And then when you get to Jacob, interestingly, all 12 of his sons, he has 12 sons. Of course, it's, he has uh, a couple wives and a couple uh, maidens to have those children. He has 12 and those, those 12 sons become the head of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the promise, by the end of Genesis, there's some signs of encouragement. Well, we're not a great nation. We're, we're a pretty large clan. It's 70 people that go to Egypt at the end of Genesis. But we're not a great nation at this point. But then as the promise continues for a few centuries into the history of Israel, and then you get to the Exodus when they're leaving Egypt, we get this description from Moses. This is Exodus chapter 12. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. We do not have that, I guess. 
Uh, Exodus 12, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, women and children. Sorry, besides women and children. So 600,000 men, typically you count just the men because you're counting your your military strength, not just your total population, your military strength, your 600,000 men on foot. And you multiply that, do some averages, it's a couple million people. Now it's a couple million people who have held together as a people for 400 years. That's significant. They've been slaves in Egypt, but nonetheless, their identity has held together as a people, as a nation, for 400 years. And at that point, they're now 2 million people. Well, that's, that's starting to look like a great nation. That great nation can do heroically terrible things at times, but they can do heroically great things at times and accomplish some great victories uh, over, over the nations in Canaan as well. So that promise as I said, that promise is holding true for this childless man, Abram, to produce a great nation. But once you keep, that, keep tracing the, the, the map of that river to its, to its ultimate destination, you realize that it's not just the physical Israel that's the issue, that's the promise. You realize that we, we are sons of Abraham. We are sons of Abraham by faith. So this is from Galatians 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now that's saying uh, something positive and something negative. It's, it's, it's saying if you believe you are a son of Abraham and it's also saying if you don't believe you are not a son of Abraham. Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's why it's a, it's a false sense of security or identity if you, if you can just trace yourself genealogically to Abraham. That's, you don't want to argue it's totally irrelevant, but it's almost totally irrelevant if you can trace yourself genealogically to Abraham. But it means everything if you can trace yourself by faith to being a son of Abraham. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You are that people. You are that great nation if you are of faith. Faith in Christ. You are a recipient of that promise. Which means you're part of a people. You're not just part of this church if this, or, or another church if you're part of another church. You know, a few hundred people perhaps in a very specific place at a very specific time. You're part of this historic intergenerational people. And not just inter, inter, intergenerational in a sense of, you know, we have some old, older folks and some younger folks who are very intergenerational. I mean intergenerational as in all the generations that ever existed. You're part of that people. It's a global, trans-historical family. And you're part of that people if you are of faith. If you're of the faith of Abraham, then you are of that people. And in a day like ours, there's, there's, there's often talk about an epidemic of loneliness. You know, ironically, obviously, because we're so socially, you know, quote unquote, connected. <clears throat> and yet, if there's an epidemic of loneliness, that tells you, well, maybe we're not quite as connected as we thought we were. But when you be, become part of the church, even though you might still feel lonely, we know that that still is going to happen, of course. You are, you are nonetheless truly and forever part of a people, a family even, not just 
not just a nation, a, a geopolitical thing, but a family, a massive global intergenerational family. You're part of that, the chosen race, a royal priesthood. So that's the second promise, a people. And then the third promise is a blessing. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you. God speaking to Abraham once again. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Again, it's good just to, just to remember the historical moment when Abram would have heard those words. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What could he possibly have thought? How can me, with my barren wife, 75 years old, with no great, no great history to speak of, no great connections to speak of, how can I possibly bless all the families of the earth? Now, the blessing that God promises isn't described here. It's just simply said a blessing in sort of generic ways. But it basically means the lavish goodness of God, the lavish kindness and undeserved grace of God. It can be the blessing of wealth or family. It can be the blessing of God's protection, nearness. And it usually means all of those things in the Old Testament. That's what it means to be blessed. You shall be blessed. Those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will, not be, will be cursed. They will not be blessed. And you can see that in the blessing of the patriarchs. This blessing is a mysterious, special thing. So it's given to Isaac, but it's actually not given to Ishmael. Ishmael is blessed, but he isn't given the blessing. The blessing goes to Isaac. And the blessing goes to Jacob. It does not go to Esau. Esau will be blessed in his own way, but he does not get the blessing, this special sacred blessing that passes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And then when you get to the 12 sons, they are all blessed. Not all identically so, but they are all blessed, recipients of this Abrahamic blessing. And then then as this blessing reverberates in the Old Testament, we see that it's at times very connected to your obedience. Now, at this point in Abraham's life, he hasn't done anything to earn this blessing. You know, there's, there's, there's passages uh, in, in about Noah where he's, he's seen as walking with God, being a righteous man who walked with God, and then these, um, these blessings follow him. Now, he didn't, now that was still, his, whatever, whatever obedience he had was still by grace, but nonetheless, in, sort of, in terms of the order of the story, there's that acknowledgement of his righteousness and then his blessing. But with Abraham, he's blessed before he does anything. But later in the Old Testament, blessing and obedience will be tied together. And so you get to Deuteronomy 28. So Deuteronomy 27 and 28 are these extended uh, passages on what will happen to you if you don't obey and what will happen to you if you obey. And in, verse 20, in chapter 28, we see that all these blessings, the, the blessings that he's about to uh, des- describe, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And that, that dual understanding of blessing is helpful for us. There's a sense in which if you, were, if you belong to God, he, he just blesses you. He blesses you because he blesses you, not because you deserve it. He blesses you because he does. Saving grace in your life came to you, not because you deserve it, but because it did. He wanted to bring it and he brought it. But there is another sense in which 
Many blessings in our life are tied to our obedience and our lack of blessings are sometimes tied to, is sometimes tied to our disobedience. So there is that, that um, it's connected to the discipline of the Lord. He's not, when we're disciplined by the Lord for disobedience, he doesn't cast us away into the outer darkness, that final condemning judgment. But we do feel negative pressure from the Lord to get our act together and get right and get on the track of obedience. But the blessing in this, this saving grace kind of way, this categorical blessing that he pours out upon us in Christ, the blessing promised here is ours through faith. And so in Galatians 3, once again, know then that it is those, who are of, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that is us, non-Jews, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the, the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Well, how is it that this one guy, Abraham, can, can do this? Well, it's because of the, the greater son of Abraham, who is Christ. And so we read this in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There are blessings in Christ. There's joy. There is peace. There is hope. God's presence is there in Christ. God's fullness is there in Christ. There are physical, relational, material blessings that we receive as Christians from the Lord's good hand. But even when all of those material, physical blessings are taken away, the, the physical, the relational, the material, when, they, when all those blessings seem to evaporate, still we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Those are undiminished. That treasure house full of the Lord's kindness and blessing is still there. You know, we, at times we, we do wish for more of those material, physical, tangible blessings. But even when those are gone, we just have to keep preaching to ourselves, yeah, but my treasure house is still full treasure house I have of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, it is still full. It's a great reminder that following Christ, being in Christ, it's, it's not just right. It's not just the right thing to do. You know, keep the speed limit and follow Christ. It's blessed. It is the blessed life. It is the blessed life. These are God's promises to Abraham. These are God's promises to you. He promises a homeland. That longing, I think we do all feel at some level for our home to be just so and for our relationships to be just so. That's God-given. He's put this longing for a homeland in each of us. And there is a better country. That is a heavenly one, but it's in Christ. It's in Christ. And we, we are kind of dual citizens. We, we, we live both now in this, this place and at the same time we live in that better country, that homeland at the same time. That promise of a people, you're part of that people. Whatever experience you've had with the epidemic of loneliness that's in our day now, you're part of a people, this great family. 
of God. And then just that blessing, the blessing of being in Christ, joy, peace, hope, forgiveness of sin, a cleansed conscience. That is a lavish blessing this world can't provide. So what you, what you come away with when you think about this promise, these promises to Abraham, the, the, the way that they, they organize in some ways, they, they frame the Old Testament and then they frame even the New Testament and even the new heavens and new earth that we're all waiting for. You realize what John Murray says here about the Abrahamic covenants. It is this Abrahamic covenant that underlies the whole subsequent development of God's redemptive promise, word, and action. It is in terms of the promise given to Abraham that in him and in his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed, that God sent forth his son in the fullness of time in order that he might redeem them that were under the law and all without distinction might receive the adoption as sons. It is in fulfillment of this promise to Abraham that there is now no longer Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, bond nor free, that Christ is all and in all and that all believers are blessed with faithful Abraham, the redemptive grace of God in the highest and furthest reaches of its realization is the unfolding of the promise given to Abraham and therefore the unfolding of the Abrahamic covenant. This is quite a river. You know, there it is before us. Or maybe we're swimming in it. Maybe we have the, the blessing of, of, being, of swimming in this river and we're, we have some greater sense now of where it came from and where it's going. But it's good to remember that with this river, just like that river on that, that hot summer day for me when I was young, the point of that was not for us to all get out our, our, our GPS coordinates and maps and trace the Chattahoochee from beginning to end and be able to, to, to map exactly where we were precisely. The point was to experience the river. It was to jump in and feel the refreshing living water of that river. God wants us to jump into these promises, experience them by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of Abraham, receive the living water, the bread of life, the forgiven sin that he offers, receive the peace and joy and hope that he offers to all those who are in this river. Believe in him. Now as a practical takeaway, there's there's a right way and a wrong way to do this, but do it in the right way. Think, just consider taking one or two minutes a day for the next week and just praying over these promises and in some ways claiming them. Just claim them as your own in Christ. There's a homeland. Claim it. There's a people you're a part of. Claim it. There's a blessing you're a part of. Claim it. And if you claim random things you want, well, that can go bad in about a thousand different ways. But if you claim what God has promised to give you, well, you can do that all day long. Claim what he promises to give you. And in some ways, claim what you already possess. In some ways, what you're claiming is a greater experience of those blessings that are already yours in Christ. And you can do that all day long. But just take one or two minutes a day for the next week. Pray over those promises in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And just let it speak to your heart there's a very good chance that the life you're experiencing now isn't like all those longings that you want and, and have. But find rest for your soul as you claim what is yours in Christ. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the profound, vast plan of salvation that you have. We give eternity in the past, we go eternity into the future, and we recognize that there is a plan at work. There is a plan unfolding in human history, your plan of salvation. We see Abraham who lived almost 2,000 years before Christ. We think about Christ, we think about ourselves almost 2,000 years after Christ, and we see what a plan of salvation you have. How marvelous, how mysterious the promises you made to that Middle Eastern man 4,000 years ago would have an effect on us that those private conversations you had with Abraham 4,000 years ago would have an effect on us, but they mean everything to us because of how they connect to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, make us those who walk in the good of the the promises that you've held out to us. Let us receive your blessings. Let us have faith to receive your blessings and let us experience in them, Lord. Let us experience them. Let us swim in this river that you have laid out before us and enjoy it and find refreshment for our souls. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.